How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another edition of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Today's podcast is sponsored by iSimulate. In case you didn't know, iSimulate uses the best of current mobile technology to create products that are more realistic, cost-effective, and simpler to use than traditional solutions. Train anywhere, anytime, using anything with their flexible simulation systems. Reality360 is their core system and is a modular simulation ecosystem incorporating a patient simulator, CPR feedback, and video recording and debriefing in a single mobile system. In today's podcast, we will discuss the importance, the relevance, the impact that simulation has on learning within the medical field, specifically pre-hospitally and as it pertains to paramedics. Joining me today to speak about the practice of simulation are two extremely dynamic individuals that we're very fortunate to have with us. Today, from the UCLA Center for Pre-Hospital Care, we have Dr. Heather Davis and also Katie O'Connor. Ladies, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So let's just get into it. So simulation is everywhere, but but the truth of the matter is, how understood is it? And I know in speaking to you ladies earlier, you had mentioned something that I thought was really important, and I actually jotted it down because um, I thought it was fascinating. You said, if we want to know what people know, we give them a written test. If we want to know what they can do, we give them a skills or a psychomotor test. And if we want to know how they are going to act or behave, then we put them in simulation. It truly is a fascinating statement. And I was wondering if you could just basically chime in on that for us and let us know what you mean by that, because I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Sure, Mike. Well, I think there's a community of folks who believe that some if you want to know what people, how people will behave in the future, you can examine their past performance. And there are also uh, educators who would love to be able to be with their students on every single call that they run, but that is not going to happen. Sure. And so we have to create a situation in which we can uh, predict how people are going to act based on situations we create in the classroom. And so the classroom or the simulation lab. And so if we want to create situations in which we can bring people to the edge of their comfort zone or the expectations of what they have done in the past and have that happen in an environment in which we as the professional educator and clinician can help sense make out of what just happened here. And if there is going to be some sort of emotional response or behavior that is inappropriate or, or, or less desirable, that that happens here on our plastic Americans, on our simulated patients in a setting that is known to be an educational setting, not on a real patient who is experiencing a crisis today or who is actually in pain or having some unfortunate memorable event. And that we can uh, very specifically 
likely to brief that and coach for what might have been more desirable behavior. So for example, and I know that I was sharing this with you, um, I have video uh, from a nanny cam of a shaken baby syndrome. Uh, And the parents who shared that video with me and invited me to use it in an educational setting, um, specifically shared that video with me and said, we would love for you to be able to use this and educate paramedics about um, how this happens and and, uh, uh, use it for educational purposes. So when I use that video in the classroom, I do a lot of setup to help people understand this is for educational purposes. The baby is fine. There was no lasting damage for this infant. And the parents have shared it with us uh, very specifically for this purpose. So I'm doing a lot to frame the emotional context of what they are about to see. And occasionally I will get other educators who challenge me and say, why would you do that? Why would you show that um, to people? It's really upsetting. And I said, absolutely. But many of the young people that we teach are do not have children of their own. They're young, uh, maybe in their 20s or, or early 20s, and they have a very strong emotional response to that. And some of that may be uh, inappropriate or might need to be guided. I would rather that happen here in this educational setting in the classroom or in the lab where I can help debrief that, coach that, guide that, rather than have it happen out there in a real situation uncontrolled where they may respond inappropriately or with violence or with inappropriate words to a perpetrator or insensitively to a family or something that would exacerbate or provoke the situation rather than the clinical or empathetic way that the family needs to be handled in that situation. Absolutely. So it makes sense. So in essence, you know, what you're trying to do is elicit an emotion out of these individuals who potentially can't relate, right? So this isn't a test that you can study for, or this isn't anything. This is actual real life. This is actually them moving and and them doing certain things, procedures, just by way of what they would be doing every day. And, and you're able to see that in real time. And then, as I said, and we'll get into it, the debrief part, but just how important that is to the learning process. Um, it's really interesting. And, you know, there's, there's something when we speak about simulation that, you know, and again, I'm a paramedic and, and certainly uh, am, am well-versed uh, in, in the simulation side, but there's something called effective domain. And I know that that's uh, very academic and carries a little bit of a stigma, Um But maybe, um, you know, Heather or Katie, you could explain a little bit to the listeners about what effective domain actually means. And also, what skills, you know, what effective skills are we looking for in these paramedics during this training? I'll let Heather um, make it sound real fancy, but the the lame person terms would be these are like soft skills that employers are looking for sometimes um, and behavioral things. Uh, And it's not just the individual student, but we're also using SIM to look at the system. So you could also think of things like crew resource management type things might be um, something you're more familiar with. We're looking at those behavioral communication patterns and um, how you want to go to the science behind it. Uh, Sure. So affective domain are really the um, professional behaviors that we are trying to examine. So like you said, if I want to know your cognitive skills, then I give often a written test. Uh, Your psychomotor skills, I give a psychomotor exam. But the affective piece is really your behaviors and often your thoughts or beliefs and how they're demonstrated. And learning really is a change in behavior. That's how we measure learning is your behavior 
behavior changes. So I have to do something to elicit your behavior in order to measure if learning has really occurred here. Because you can tell me all day long or talk to me all day long, but it's really how are you going to behave in a particular situation? It is important to note here that the affective domain are part of the national education standards for pre-hospital providers and part of those curriculum. And the uh, uh, there are 11 professional behaviors that are very clearly articulated with really great examples. Um, examples of, uh, so not just statements like uh, professional behaviors or affective behaviors include integrity or communication or teamwork, but actual integrity might, these are examples of what integrity might look like. Um, attention to detail, advocacy for the patient, self-motivation, careful delivery of service. These are all examples that are given. And so I think they're really easy for schools to use and implement, but it is really important that uh, program schools or even um, uh, employers have them integrated as part of, if, if we're talking about an academic program at school, that you have them in, in, integrated as part of your grading criteria. Um, there's something we like to say, which is if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. And so uh, part of the curriculum must reflect that these matter to us as an educational institution and as a profession. And so one of the things I like to say is, yes, we care what you know, and yes, we care what you can do, but we also care how you talk and how you behave and particularly towards patients. So um, I hope that you conduct yourself in a really positive way all the time, but you definitely better be able to do it when you are wearing the uniform and on duty and taking care of patients there. It does matter. And there are 11 professional behaviors, which we are required to grade on and say, yes, you can conduct yourself in this way, that these are uh, part of the functional uh, job analysis and are required to actually do the job of being a paramedic. It's really interesting um, to hear you say that because it's almost ironic in a sense that it deals with the emotions. Um, and as responders, we're always taught to be stoic, stone-faced, compartmentalized, and all of these you know, negative uh, learning behaviors that uh, over the years uh, we've basically just taken on. And now we're trying to break that because, again, it doesn't really much matter how proficient you are, but uh, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It obviously matters, but it also takes into account how you deliver um, and the emotional element to that. And I think that is what you're trying to say, correct? Yeah, I think it's really important how you treat the patient, not just how you treat the patient, right? So yep. being able to start an IV is important, but also being able to talk some to someone and tell them how you're going to start that IV, especially in a situation where we're at now, where there's lots of people making decisions around their healthcare about things that aren't related to their healthcare. So how much is this going to cost for me, the, the copay? I don't have insurance. Who's going to watch my children if I go to the hospital? Is this the last time I'm going to be in my house? Am I going to the hospital to die? And so being able to have those kinds of communication strategies, but really face a situation that's difficult, it's great to answer a multiple choice question. It's really diff difficult to actually have that conversation with someone who's looking back at you and potentially crying or has you know children around that are these actual real human beings that have faces. They're not just an A, B, C, or D question <laughs> on, on a test. Sure. Absolutely. So, so how can simulation be used to achieve these effective objectives? I think one of the things that we've been really successful with here is putting the students in the roles not only as the paramedics, but as the actual patients. Dr. Davis does a uh, activity where we make the students uh, be not only the in, the patients, but also the staff of a nursing home. Um, and she can tell you a little bit more about it. 
Yeah. So one of the things that um, Katie's really brought to our program here at UCLA is to um, help our instructors understand the hidden curriculum, which is uh, if you consistently present patients in a particular way or scenarios in a particular way, then our students leave our program expecting that that uh, the patients or the providers they encounter to always be that way. So for example, if you always present the opioid overdose, the narcotic overdose as a homeless patient who's dirty and on the street and a, you know, a, a drug user, then when you see the breast cancer patient who's uh, thin and frail and in her bed, you don't even recognize perhaps that that's an overdose um, because you have all only ever practiced scenarios where it's been the dirty guy on the floor who's overdosed on narcotics. And so one of the things that sometimes happens in running scenarios is we present the nursing home staff as clueless, that they never know anything about this patient. It's always shift change. I don't know. They're not attached to oxygen. Yeah. Sure. And, the, and the reason they, we often do that is actually for lack of personnel. It's because we don't want to, quote unquote, pay another person to act that character in the simulation or scenario, not because we believe that nursing home staff are clueless. Um, so the by saying, oh, I don't know, is a quick way to make the facilitator of the scenario not have to play two roles. But the message the students end up getting is nursing home staff are clueless. Well, that's insulting and inaccurate. And so also, most of us would not want to have to do that job of, of work in a nursing home. And so one of the activities that I created, by, I've often taught geriatrics here and was one of the original authors on the GEMS project. Um, so here I designate a nursing home director and then they get to choose their staff, but they only get to choose a limited number, just five personnel, one RN, and then a couple of nurses aides. And then we have large classes here. We have classes often of 45 or 50. And so those five providers, then um, everybody has a disability of aging. So they draw for them and then uh, some will have, be hard of hearing and they will wear earplugs. Some will pull arthritis and they, we put popsicle sticks in their um, gloves so that it's difficult to pick things up. Uh, many will wear specific glasses that give them macular degeneration or glaucoma or what have you. Um, some will have a stroke, and so one side will be immobilized. Some will be bedridden, et cetera. You get the point. Um, but then this small group have to go through snack time. They have responsibilities to get them up and get them toileted. They have responsibilities to uh, get them to activity and all the things that will happen at a you know care facility during the day and then some will have a couple of medical situations and they will have to determine if they can handle it if they should call the attending physician or if they should call 911 and so it really creates an appreciation for a what it's like to have to wait for somebody to come take care of you when you're sitting in a wet depends and yes some of them will sit in a wet depends um, and also how busy you are if you have a staffing ratio of 1 to 12 or 1 to 15. And then when you're the nursing home director, the only RN on staff, what it's like to try to manage five different people who are giving you report and asking you what to do and if they can give meds and et cetera for all of the different folks under their care. So that's been a really successful activity here that is sort of beyond just one sim and a sim lab that is a whole class activity, but really helps with this hidden curriculum and addressing some of those issues. It's interesting because what it sounds like is you're building empathy 
by making these individuals face these universal stereotypes, right? So, you know, it's it's no it's no secret that, you know, healthcare providers are going to say that these nursing home, uh, these facility employees, they're clueless, right? It's that's not specific to one area. But then when you say, hey, you know what, you're better, you're better than me, you do it. That builds that empathy. And, um, you know, I think that's what's so important with simulation. And simulation obviously takes many forms. Um, you know, we're used to the, the mannequins, the high fidelity mannequins, but then the simulated participants, like you're saying, having these students play these roles, what are some of the difficulties in having them play these roles? Because I have to imagine that not everybody is taught or coached the same way and allows those learners to get the same thing out of it. So how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of just kind of hurdles around um, having students or simulated participants in simulation, especially if you're thinking of like, oh, I need a standardized patient. We've had, again, really good success with making the students fill those roles, but we also have integrated people who want to be students here. So we take our EMT students and they're, they can earn extra credit by volunteering as patients in the paramedic program. So they're learning as EMT students by being patients in our program, but also providing a patient opportunity for the paramedic students here to really have someone to interact with and talk to. Um, and then we've been coming up with novel ideas for, okay, well, we want them to practice doing an IV while they're talking to the patient. So we've made cheap little IV arms that they can Velcro on. Um, we've transitioned from monitors to using the iSimulate tool because then they can actually take a blood pressure and they get the blood pressure per, for the scenario, not necessarily like they have to turn to a um, evaluator and ask them what's the real blood pressure and have more of a like a tabletop scenario. They're actually doing it now. Um, the one thing that we find that's sometimes difficult with the students is when they're each other's patients, the classmates are each other's patients, they get a little handsy and a little silly. And you can imagine it devolves really quickly into like, how hard can I palpate his abdomen before he makes a reaction? Sure. Um, it changes when you have their moms come in. So their moms and dads and family members can come in and become the patients um, and earn extra credit for their student. And then they actually get to see what it's like to be a paramedic student, what their students are going through. And it's a great bonding um, for the whole team. And we've actually had some people, parents who are great actors who love doing it and keep coming in. Um, one actually was so good that the students walking by the room thought he was having a respiratory emergency for real and came and got us and we're like, oh my gosh, he's really having trouble breathing. I don't, I think he needs help. They're like, yeah, you need to go in there and help him. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, I think that type of mentality of being creative really draws out the creativity in others. Um, as we uh, start to close out on this, there's, there's one thing that I think incorporates very much the hardware and the software part of this, especially from the iSimulate perspective. And that's, that's the debrief and the focus debrief where much of the learning happens. So um, just tell me a little bit about the, the focus debrief and what is accomplished during that time. Yeah. So one of the real big things is Heather was talking about is looking at the frame of reference and what were they thinking. Um, so when we're doing the video reviews, there's a chance for the proctors to tag in the video timeline, the recording. Wow. I don't know why the student just did that. That's strange for me. And so we can actually pull that video up and say, hey, this I would have done this differently. Can you tell me what you were thinking right here? Why did you do that? Um, one example we had was a student who was holding pressure on internal vaginal bleeding for like 25 minutes. And it was, he was like moving to the stretcher with the patient still holding pressure, holding while they were transporting to the hospital, holding transition at the hospital. And the nurse finally said, 
um, what are you doing? And he was like, pulled his hand away. Like he was completely zoned out the entire time. So being able to show him that video of look what you were doing. Do you even think you were thinking of what was happening? And it's really powerful for them to see versus just kind of giving him a laundry list of you should do this better. You should do this better. You should do this better. We can get to their frame of what were you thinking here and why? And then sometimes they're not doing the wrong thing, but they're interpreting the assessment in a different way than we intended. So we really get to a thought process. You know, it's interesting and, and driving home this type of stuff, what, you know, once they view these, um, I don't, I want to say, I don't want to say mistakes because it's such a negative connotation, but things that they could have done better. Um, you know, how does that, how do you drive that home to master the practice? You know, what, what, what sticks with these folks that says, okay, you know what? I know what I did wrong. Now moving forward, I have to transition and I have to make sure that doesn't happen again. What is the process with this simulation or, you know, as this moves forward and as this goes on, how, how do they master these things? So we would refer to that as deliberate practice, and it's really a, a, a benefit or a treat or a luxury for folks to be able to do deliberate practice. Um, not many get to. And so do, the components of deliberate practice are that, first of all, somebody has a very specific goal that they are trying to work to improve, um, that they are able to get feedback and then practice to address that specific goal. So the way that the video, like when you're using something like reality works is that you have been able to tag the parts of your assessment or performance that were of concern. So this now draws your attention, allows you to be specific about what is it exactly that I'm trying to get better at. As students, they often could do a hundred things better, but we can't get better at a hundred things. If we get 1% better at a hundred things, it's not going to be noticeable improvement. We as educators really have to help people focus on what are the three non-negotiables? What are the three things that must improve before your next iteration or before your next skills day or before your next internship shift or what have you? And then once they have received that coaching and feedback from the instructor, they now can practice. And when you get specific feedback, that's what's really helpful. And so let me give you an example of specific feedback. If I was the instructor and I said, oh, look there, you have the wrong angle with the laryngoscope. That's why you were unsuccessful with that intubation. Well, that's accurate feedback. But frankly, as the student, you can't practice to improve without me standing there going, nope, still have the wrong angle. Oh no, do this, do that. I need to give you feedback that's good enough feedback that you can actually practice without me being there and get it every time. So a better feedback, specific feedback would be aim for where the ceiling meets the wall. You want to go forward and up in a way that the seal, where the ceiling meets the wall, and that should give you the correct angle every time that you can expose all the landmarks of the airway and be able to introduce the tube into the right structures. Um, that allows you to practice without me being there. So that kind of specific feedback leads to deliberate practice and closing of those performance gaps. And that's what something like the reality does is you to tag the video and go back to right there where you got that specific uh, specific element of your performance. The other thing is, which is by the way, the reason that athletes, of course, use video, <laughs> video playback and video, yeah, video recording and video playback of their performance with their coach. And by the way, you could, of course, continue to record the feedback session on the reality, and that would be really powerful for students as well, is to be able to also capture their feedback in the debrief. 
if we capture the truth on reality, we can also do instructor development, which is always something that we're wanting to do. So that's great too. You know, it's, it's really fascinating stuff, ladies. It's amazing stuff. It's really taking knowledge and the skills, but it's also including now the teaching process of learning. Um, and I think there's so many awesome things going on with simulation, whether it be with Fidelity Mannequins or whether it be with active participants. Um, and I think you're both doing an amazing job. And I want to thank you both for coming on with us today uh, just to explain all the awesome things that are going on and where the future of uh, training in this field is going. So once again, uh, a, a great, huge thank you to Katie O'Connor and Dr. Heather Davis of UCLA Center for Pre-Hospital Care. Uh, once again, this podcast was sponsored by iSimulate. You can follow iSimulate with the handle I underscore simulate and on the web at www.isimulate.com. Again, thank you, ladies, for your participation in today's podcast. It really was enlightening. Um, Best of luck with all of the amazing things you have going on. Uh, and we look to speak with you again real soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020 at EMS World Expo.